The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of God's word, This evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together to study your word this evening, to be refreshed by the truth, recognizing what Jesus said, that it is by means of your word that we are sanctified. It is God the Holy Spirit who works inside us supernaturally, taking your word, metabolizing it, making it a part of our our soul's uh, thought base and the basis for spiritual growth, spiritual advance. Father, as we study these concepts, though they may be a little difficult or a little different from what we uh, normally think about, we pray that you'll help us as we learn to think biblically that we may more uh, consistently glorify you and honor you in all that we say, think, and do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're continuing our study in Hebrews chapter 5, but we're not really doing any exegesis on Hebrews 5 tonight. I'm still working off of this concept of the dynamics of a backsliding uh, believer, thinking through these things, because uh, even as I have been teaching this the last three or four weeks, I've had opportunities to uh, be at, uh, to just listen to how Christians talk. And if you listen to how Christians talk, it's no wonder they, they, they make bad decisions, is decision-making and thought is based on vocabulary. And if you have bad vocabulary and poor uh, word choices in how you're expressing your concept of God and your relationship with God, you're going to end up just making bad decisions because your, your vocabulary is not, not correct, not biblically correct. And as I pointed out in recent... Uh, weeks in our study, we have uh, a problem in Christianity in that from, from the first century, from the time Jesus began to teach, probably with the Sermon on the Mount on, people have interpreted what the Bible says from the frame of reference of whatever their worldview is. And it, it, it's a process of, of, and that's really the process of sanctification. As outlined in Romans 12:2, don't be conformed to the world, which doesn't mean it's not talking about overt behavior. It's not talking about don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go with girls that do. It's not talking about not going to movies. It's not talking about listening to rock music. It's talking about a thought system that relates to culture, which is where I went in the, our last class in Hebrews, is that 
the analogy that comes closest to my thinking of what, what the Romans 12.2 is talking about when it says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed with the renewing of your mind. It's as if you were to be transported instantly to somewhere deep in the mountains of western China. And for the rest of your life, you had to operate within that culture. You would have to learn the history. You would have to learn the customs. You would have to learn the language. You would have to learn uh, all of the uh, uh, social mores, the manners, uh, how to talk to people, how not to offend people by doing certain things or saying certain things that are much different from what you grew up with as an American. And so you would have to learn to think in completely different ways. And if you've ever studied uh, Asian world views, Asian culture as opposed to Western culture, you know that they're about as radically opposed to one another as human cultures can be. But when you get saved as a new member of the royal family of God, God gives you a whole new culture, a whole new world view that's all expressed with, within the Bible a whole new way of thinking about reality. And what we're in the process of doing now as Philippians, Paul talks about the fact that we're no longer uh, citizens of the earth, we're uh, citizens of heaven. And as part of that transformation that takes place, we now have to learn what those, uh, what our ultimate view of reality is as a believer. We have to explore and plumb the depths of the a person of God, his essence, what all of those attributes mean, his eternal existence as a triune God, and how uh, the fact that the Creator is distinct from the creation uh, affects how we view the creation in terms of that, that relationship and that the Creator is both a plurality and a singularity. And as creatures, we think of plurality and singularity as as somewhat contradictory, how can he be both three and one at the same time? And that's because we're taking our limited, finite logic based on uh, autonomous or, as I've said, independent reason, and we're trying to take what the Bible describes as his existence as three and one, and we're trying to take that and interpret that within our uh, mathematical grid that comes out of our creaturely frame of reference. What we have to do is take what the Bible says as our starting point and not our concept of number theory as our starting point. And so we have to learn to think differently. It's not just a matter of of learning to think about different things. Obviously, uh, Scripture talks about think about whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are honorable. Think on these things. That verse in Philippians 3, 7, and 8, I think, is, is talking about the content of our thinking, but it's also the, the structure of our thinking. Just as uh, an Asian is going to think structurally in a different way from the way a Westerner is going to think, when you become a believer... The structure of your thinking has to change. Now, that's, a, that's an arena of application and understanding that very few churches or pastors are ever going to go to, especially in the superficial, emotional, feel-good uh, Christianity that we have that's so popular today. I mean, you're never going to 
hear somebody like uh, Joel Osteen or Robert Shuler ever use a word like epistemology, he'd scare everybody off. He just wants everybody to feel good. And that comes out of a certain cultural worldview. So this is what I, I want to talk about because as we see in this in our passage in Hebrews, the problem with these believers is that they have advanced to a certain stage and due to uh, carnality, they're regressing uh, spiritually. And we see this in... Uh, Hebrews 5:11 of whom we have, about whom that is Melchizedek we have much to say hard to explain because you become dull of hearing you become lazy uh, uh, in your hearing and what puts what is it the question that I'm asking is what is it that puts pressure on our thinking so that rather than advancing in that pr- a process of conforming our thinking to the word of God we regress, and we our, our thinking becomes conformed to the culture uh, that's that's around us. And the ultimate dynamic comes out of our sin nature. Sin na- the Bible teaches that every Christian faces three enemies: our internal enemy of the sin nature, and two external enemies. The two external enemies are the the worldliness, which is the Greek word cosmos. So I refer to this as cosmic, with a K from the Greek, cosmic degeneracy. And as our sin, and our, there's an affinity between our sin nature and various forms of cosmic thought. There's all there's in, in one sense there's only two ways of thinking: either human viewpoint or divine viewpoint. That's all there is. But within human viewpoint, you have a a, a kaleidoscope of, of variations of human viewpoint thought, all of which provides rationalizations for our sin nature to freely operate in independence from the will of God. So we have to understand how these things work, and they follow the trends of our sin nature. And everybody's sin nature has a trend towards either uh, either uh, licentiousness which is the complete rejection of any kind of authority, just random chaos, do whatever you want to do, or towards legalism, which is a highly structured, rigid uh, control system. So we frequently think of degeneracy as immoral degeneracy, but it not only plays out in terms of morality, doing whatever you want to do, sexual immorality, but you have different, other different kinds of immorality as well. But in the role of knowledge, which is what we're talking about, how do you know when God tells you to do something? How do you know what's true? How do you, what, what is your way of knowing anything? Uh, when somebody says, uh, for example, that I, I read a, a Christian book on the subject of... Uh, Let's say marriage. And I just knew that what he said was right because it, it, it resonated with me and my experience. Oh, what, what's the ultimate determiner there? Is it what the Bible says or experience? See, they've evaluated it because it fit their experience. Now, that doesn't mean that it's biblical. They might not have been taught a, a biblical view of Christian marriage in that process in their upbringing uh, might have been distorted in some way 
but because it fit their experience of, of love and romance, it must be right. No, how do you know it's right? What's that ultimate determiner? And so often Christians fade into mysticism. Well, it just seemed right. It felt right. It, 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 it resonated with him. In some terminology like that is, uh, is usually what comes across. And this is epistemological antinomianism. How do you like that for a phrase? And that's what it is. It's just in the realm of knowledge, it's just antinomian. It's just like I can, you know, any, anything goes. How, how do I know something is true? Well, it just seems right. Okay, well, and I find that when I uh, listen to Christians discuss things, very rarely when I do I hear someone say, "Okay, what is the biblical passage? How do you know that from the Bible? Give me the scripture that supports this, whatever it is that you're 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 saying." And and see, most people are so biblically illiterate that they can't do that, and so all these ideas kind of get shuffled around. And oh, well, it sounds good. Well, that's how people get deceived is because things sound good. They seem to work, pragmatism. They uh, seem to be logical, rationalism. But are they from the Scripture? So we have to always go back and say, is this biblical? Does it come out of the Scripture? And biblical doesn't mean, is it just consistent with the Bible? It means, does it come from the Bible? Because a lot of people can make anything, a lot of things seem to be consistent with the Bible. So in terms of cosmic degeneracy, we have irrationalism and mysticism uh, morally produces licentiousness. On the other side of the spectrum, we have moral degeneracy. That, uh, you know, a great example of moral degeneracy might be uh, uh, Shia law in Islam. I mean, you have this overt morality which is what attracts many Westerners to uh, Islam is because they're reacting to the licentiousness, the immorality in Western culture, the breakdown of the family, the breakdown of marriage. And so at a superficial level, it appears as if there is order and structure in marriage and family and morality in some of these religious systems like uh, Mormonism, Islam. Uh, So there's moral degeneracy. In moral degeneracy, there's an emphasis on autonomous reason and empiricism as the basis, as the ultimate determiner of truth. We've gone through this many times in the past. I just want to bring, spend a couple of weeks, bring our heads back into this. It also promotes, moral degeneracy promotes asceticism and self-righteousness because you know the truth because of your use of reason and empiricism. Two examples in the Bible, immoral degeneracy is pictured in the Old Testament through the fertility religions of the idolatrous religions of the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Uh, Nothing different from the prosperity gospel folks today. It's just another uh, sanitized, moralized version of ancient prosperity theology. Uh, Moral degeneracy in the Bible is pictured by the Pharisees. They're whitewashed sepulchers, Jesus says. They look good on the outside, but on the inside, it's dead men's bones. But they're rigorous in their logic, rigorous in their morality, rigorous in, fi- in following an external, an external code. Now, just a reminder, 
I want to put this chart up here. We have to always think, whenever you're dealing with an issue of knowledge, how do I know something is true? Always think in terms of this chart. There are four ways in which we claim mankind historically claims to know anything to be true. The first three are human viewpoint systems. And by human viewpoint, I mean that God only enters into the system secondarily. He's not the primary starting point. Man starts with himself with ultimate faith in human ability. So you have rationalism, which starts with human reason in the mind. Somewhere in the mind you have a first principle that is known inherently by man, and that becomes a starting point. And building on that uh, in a rigorous system of rigorous logic, you can come to an understanding of all reality. You can develop a system of metaphysics, which has to do with uh, the existence of God usually in philosophy, or you can come to your uh, you know, ethics, uh, aesthetics. All of this flows out of rationalism. In contrast to rationalism, you have empiricism, which doesn't start with what's in the mind. It starts with what you derive externally through uh, sense perception, what you see, hear, taste, touch. Uh, this is empiricism. It follows external experience, foundation for the scientific method. Both rationalism and empiricism put their faith in human ability that that man in and of itself, in and of himself, is able to accurately interpret the external or, in the case of rationalism, internal data because he knows enough. It's an ultimate faith in human ability. So again, it's an independent use of logic and reason. Then there's mysticism. Mysticism is really rationalism gone to seed because the the starting point in mysticism is still what's inside your head, what's going on inside inside your mind, except instead of a first principle that is related logically, now it's just some intuitive insight, some feeling, some impression, some thought that comes to your head, and that is as real to you as any sense perception and because it's so real to the mystic, it can't be externally evaluated. It can't be talked about logically because logic and reason are rejected in, in mysticism. In contrast to all the human systems of knowledge, you have revelation. That is, that God speaks truth to man. And it's only under the framework, under the umbrella of God's revelation that man is able to know truth about anything else. He can learn many things through reason. He can learn many things empirically. uh, But he can only ultimately know truth, capital T truth, under the umbrella of divine revelation. So the starting point is the objective revelation of God that is self-authenticating. This is where it gets confusing with mysticism because the mystic thinks it's self-authenticating because, but it's totally interior. It's totally within. There's no external validation point that you can go to. Whereas when God speaks to man, he does so and there are validating evidences. You, and we'll talk about this a little bit as we go through today, uh, this evening. So there's a use of logic and reason. It doesn't reject logic and reason, but it uses logic and reason, but within the structure 
of what God has revealed objectively through His Word. All that just by way of review. Now, what what I've looked at to the large part is the fact that we've got a real problem today with mysticism, subjectivity, emotionalism. People think that they can know what God has for them uh, through some sort of inner light guidance mechanism. And you find it leaks in in the strangest places. And it's, it's part of our heritage as evangelicals. There's always been a certain amount of this. And you can go to certain theologians uh, that we respect in many, many ways, and you will see uh, leakage in this area. And you just have to spot it and say, well, you know, that was an area that they didn't think through that clearly, and, and others have thought it through more clearly since then. And so you just, you know, step around it and move forward. Uh, and so after taking a couple of weeks to deal with the mystics among us, I, I wanted to deal with the rationalists among us, because that's just as much a problem for many people is that that they have this subtle, uh, ins- this subtle insertion of rationalism as a, and reason as an ultimate criteria where it leaks in as this independent use of reason to judge certain things that are revealed in the Scripture. So what I want to talk about, first of all, is the more overt forms forms of rationalism and empiricism that have affected Christianity, and then we'll come back and talk about some of the more subtle forms. Then when I finish that, if we still have time, I want to get it go back to mysticism because um, it connects with what we're studying Tuesday night in Divine Guidance, and there's just so much going on. I'm just going back and forth, so we'll learn a lot. In the early early 19th century, coming out of the 18th century Enlightenment, you had a denial of what came to be known as fundamental doctrines in the Scripture. There was a denial of revelation that um, uh, God did not objectively reveal himself in the Bible. There was questions raised about the infallibility and the inspiration of Scripture so that the Bible was no longer viewed as God speaking to man, but it is man's record of his experiences with God. Put God in quotes. So therefore, it's no longer guaranteed to be free from error. And people came up with certain uh, allegations about contradictions in Scripture, uh, problems where they thought that history showed something else. And frankly, no one has ever demonstrated any contradiction in Scripture that cannot be handled within the structure of how Scripture presents itself. No one can, has ever presented any sort of, uh, from archaeology or history, any kind of contradiction uh, from the Bible. People come at it that way all the time, but often they misrepresent a Scripture. They set up straw man arguments. You're going to see a certain amount of this right now. I'm going to deal with this Sunday morning with the Judas Gospel, and we've got another book coming out called The Jesus Papers by Michael Bajant, who was one of the co-authors of the nonfiction book, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which was the foundation for the Da Vinci Code. And, of course, we've got the Da Vinci Code movie coming out in May. So all these are just great opportunities for believers to be able to dialogue and talk with people around them. You're going to get great opportunities, but it, it calls upon the average pew sitter to know a whole lot more data about some of this information than, than you've had to know in the past because the, the, these attacks 
are based upon a just a mass of, of, of false information that's thrown out there. It's the old big lie technique. If you just give a big enough lie with lots and lots, you know, with, with 2,000 pieces of false data, then you just sort of overwhelmed the, the, the believer with all this false information, and they don't know where to begin. They don't, know, they, they don't feel like an expert in all these areas, so they don't even know how to respond. So part of what I want to do Sunday morning for a Resurrection Day message is deal with uh, something I mentioned at the pastor's conference, just some basic things that we need to have, some fa- basic facts we need to have so we, we, when we're talking with, uh, with anybody about these things, we can pull these things up real quick, and they're just sort of nice, foundational, focused uh, comments that uh, can at least get us past some of these current current events. So the questions that came up because of, of uh, rationalism was that how can, you know, we don't, we, don't, we can't, and rationalism and empiricism combined, we can't, we don't have any uh, empirical data today of God speaking, there's no burning bush, there's no, nobody's getting ra- raised from the dead, there's no healing, so they rejected the infallibility of inspiration of scripture, miracles and resurrection. They rejected the virgin birth. How can you believe in a virgin birth? How how silly. How can that happen? Uh, they rejected substitutionary atonement. Uh, of course, what's part of that is they reject what the Bible says man is, which is a fallen sinner who's violated God's standards. So if man isn't what the Bible says he is, then man doesn't need the solution that the Bible says he needs. So they reject substitutionary atonement. Jesus died to be an example of love. He died to be an example of care and dedication and all this other uh, garbage that is just you know, imported into uh, the Scripture. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Uh, re- denial of, of uh, resurrection, de- denial of Jesus' future second coming. So how did all this happen? Let's get a little historical background. So I have some talking points here. So we can understand what was going on in the in the 19th century. If you don't understand the 19th century and what was coming out of the Enlightenment of the 18th century, you just get lost in what happened in the in the 20th century. And you look around, and you say, "How did we get where we are today? Where Christianity just seems like it's the enemy? It's it's just been marginalized and 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 pushed out even further than the margins." And we live in a, in a society today, in a culture today, that is just 180 degrees opposite of where it was 150 years ago. Well, what happened? And, and I'm planning to have a much lengthier series on this coming up sometime in the fall or next winter. Uh, so first point, what we call 19th century religious liberalism or 19th century Protestant liberalism had its roots in the Enlightenment of the 18th century. In the Enlightenment, human reason and uh, the ability, and autonomous human reason is elevated above any kind of religion. It's a, it is a reaction to the uh, mystical superstition that dominated in the, in the Middle Ages. And see, even the terminology that we use here reflects this pagan opposition to Christianity. How do most people refer to the Middle Ages? Those were the dark ages. They were dark. But then what happened? We, were, we had a shift to the in, emphasis on human reason and experience, and it became the Enlightenment. 
So you see there's a hidden agenda there that when, when, when Christianity dominated, things were dark. But they weren't dark. But you were taught that when you were in school, and that's what most people are taught. But there was a tremendous amount of learning going on, and it was, it was the Christians that kept learning alive. It was the monasteries that copied the scriptures and copied the ancient documents. And there was a tremendous amount of scholarship and thought that went on. You had brilliant minds. I'm not saying that they were right theologically, but you had brilliant minds like people like Thomas Aquinas, who if you've ever read the Summa Theologica or his Summa Contra Gentiles or any of his other writings, uh, they're very difficult for the average product of American secular education to follow. And he would dictate four or five of these books at the same time to four or five different scribes. He would dictate a paragraph here, then a paragraph in the next book to the next guy, and a paragraph in another book to another one, and a paragraph in the fourth book to a fourth scribe. Then he'd go back to the first, and he never lost track. I mean, these people were brilliant, and they were incredibly educated. And they, but the the problem, one of the problems theologically was that they had. They were operating on Aristotelian or Platonic presuppositions that created problems. And that's really, just as a side note, that was really what the problem was between what you, 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 you typically hear a misconstruction of the whole Galileo episode. That that's science versus religion? No. It was new science versus old science. The Roman Catholic Church at that time wasn't operating on a biblical viewpoint. They were operating on an Aristotelian view of, of science and, and the universe. And an Aristotelian view was, was geocentric, that the earth was the center of the solar system and the, and, and the center of the universe, as opposed to what was coming up from new science, which was saying that, no, the uh, solar system is heliocentric and the solar system isn't the center of the universe. It had nothing to do, do with the Bible. It had to do with the fact that the Roman Catholic Church had compromised with Aristotelian empiricism, and now a new form of empiricism was coming up in the Enlightenment, and that was what the conflict was, because the... Uh, uh, the Bible doesn't make a statement regarding helio. I mean, but, uh, of geocentrism. It doesn't. They got that out of Aristotelianism. So anyhow, you have the Enlightenment that develops in the uh, six in the 17th to the 18th century, so that human reason and empiricism become the final authority or determiner of truth. There is an implicit rejection that God speaks. Uh, speaks to man. This reaches its culmination in the philosophical shift that took place in the writings of a German philosopher by the name of Immanuel Kant. And what Immanuel Kant said was that man can't know things as they are objectively. He can only know his impressions of things. Therefore, knowledge is no longer objectively outside of man. Truth, see, up until this point, everybody believed that there was truth, that it existed objectively and externally. They didn't agree on how you knew it or how you got there, but everybody believed there was external, objectifiable, knowable truth. But Kant said, no, we don't know truth. It's not out there. All we know is what we see of truth. 
All we know is our impression. So you have your impression and somebody else has their impression. And it's the old analogy of the six blind men, each one feeling a different part of the elephant and coming up to a different... It's, you know, that, that was really a Hindu illustration. But, but one, one guy feels the a tail and says it's like a snake. And another one feels the trunk and it feels like a, uh, a tree or it feels a leg. It feels like a tree. Another one feels a side and said it feels like a wall. And they they... They're, they don't know what it is. Everybody, all they know is their impression of truth. Well, this destroys any basis for objective knowledge. And it just ripples through the intellectual community from Germany all through Europe and across, uh, across the pond of the U.S. And man can't know objective knowledge anymore. And that affects Everything, they're just in awe of this. Oh, this is so intellectual. This is so wonderful. And, of course, it destroys any absolute truth from Scripture because you can't know anything but your impression. So you can't know God. You can't know anything that exists in what he called the realm of the noumenal. You can only know the realm of the phenomenal, which is what you experience. So knowledge... Our third point, knowledge is no longer objective, it's now subjective. So truth, ultimately, where this goes is truth becomes relative. You have your truth, and somebody else has their truth, and how do you know if there's any absolute overriding universal truth? Well, you don't. You just have your impression. So it leads to the complete breakdown of having any kind of absolute meaning, any unifying truth, any unifying knowledge where people can know and make absolute decisions. And once you destroy the basis for absolutes, then all of culture starts to break down, which is where we end up with today in postmodernism. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. So truth comes in, um, in Kantian Understanding of knowledge comes from within the human mind. See, that's rationalism. But when rationalism goes to seed, it also becomes mysticism. And, and you get into the later development in the 19th century, you start getting the intrusion of mystical ideas into uh, people like uh, Hegel and Kierkegaard and other, uh, other philosophers at that time. In this whole and this whole maelstrom of intellectual ferment that's going on in Europe in the 19th century, you have the rise of four great intellectual novelties that take place. And it's interesting, they all pop up on the landscape within about 20 years of each other. Now, you think that that's coincidence? No, that's not coincidence. It happens because the... the Center of truth has now shifted from outside man to inside man. That's why they called it, called Kant's thinking, the Copernican revolution in philosophy is the center of reality shifted from external objectivity to internal subjectivity. So uh, within 20 years, you have the rise of Darwinism and evolution, Herbert Spencer and modern sociology, uh, Sigmund Freud and modern psychology, and Karl Marx and economics and Marxism. And these guys all knew each other and read each other and cross-pollinated ideas. And it all comes from a foundation that rejects God and rejects the idea that, that the universe, the world, the systems of the universe, and the institutions of society are determined by a creator God. 
And so once autonomous reason takes over in the uh, in academia, then it starts to impact every discipline of thought from from, of course, the obvious ones here, but it affects economics, it affects law, it affects politics, it affects, uh, it affects your social sciences. Everything shifts radically in the late 19th century. And this, of course, affects uh, their view of Christianity. The effect of this on Christianity is to cause a rejection of revelation as objective and infallible. See, you you can't know anything objectively and truly anymore according to this Kantian shift. And therefore, all, all Christianity is just another religious system, just like Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, any other religious system. You just, it, it, may have, it, it, it may be a little more civilized, but it's still just, just another option. And this is based, of course, Darwinism comes along and, and uh, Herbert Spencer and sociology, that these religions evolve, so none is more important than others. And then you have a rejection of miracles, virgin birth, resurrection, all these are just superstitious myths that are too unbelievable for modern minds. Modern man, now that modern man understands knowledge as developed by Kant, we know you can't know truth. There aren't any absolutes. So we can't live in that superstitious, dark mentality that God has spoken truly to man anymore. We can't, we can't live like that. We, we've become too sophisticated. We've become too modern. So this became known as the modernist movement. Now, one effect of this was to remove God and the Bible from having anything to say about man's intellectual life and thus how he thinks about his environment. Social, political, economic, legal, aesthetic, that's art, music, theater, drama, literature, uh, science. God no longer speaks to this. And see, up to this point, Christians might have differed in their conclusions or how they got there, but they all believed that the Bible spoke to every area of life. And now all of a sudden the Bible doesn't speak to all these areas of life. We need, we need reason and empiricism to do that, not the Bible. You, you, say, you go back to the Bible to define law, freedom, authority. You, you're, you're, you belong in the dark ages. You're just some sort of uh, antediluvian dinosaur. You're not, you're, you're not in the modern world anymore. So... The Bible, all of a sudden, what the Bible addressed shrunk. It just talks about you and your relationship to God. That's all it talks about. It just talks about your spiritual life. And, and that's it. And so it becomes very subjective. This impacts, and we see this by the end of the 20th century, impacting uh, all kinds of concepts about worship and teaching and everything. I mean, you, you, don't go to, you couldn't go to a church today on a Sunday morning and, find a, and hear a sermon on a biblical theology of economics. You could 400 years ago, but you won't today. There might be, if you found any place like that, there'd be one person sitting out there in the pew. You couldn't go somewhere and find a pastor teaching on a, a biblical theology 
of art and music. It just isn't done. I mean, people won't stand for it. They're, they're not trained intellectually to be able to handle this anymore. We're all products of a wonderful public, public education, state-funded uh, system. Another consequence of all this is that man's problems are no longer viewed as spiritual. Or let me, we could add the word ultimately. Man's problems are no longer viewed as ultimately spiritual. That the problems we have with society, with prejudice, with poverty, with uh, war, that we no longer view these as ult- having their ultimate source in a spiritual problem of man's separation from God. And so rather than making the primary solution the cross the primary solution becomes let's get involved socially and this is what happened in the 19th century with the social gospel that that we need to bring in social justice we need to solve the problems of in of, of the slums in the inner city problems of slavery problems of child labor all these other things not that these aren't problems but that's not the thrust of scripture and 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 that if that was the rise of political political liberalism and how political liberalism is integrally related to religious liberalism. So now, since the the problem of man is not uh, the Adamic fall and separation from God, the problem is now defined psychologically or socially. So that what happens is that the solution is now defined psychologically or socially. Being born again becomes a psychological shift not a spiritual rebirth and and so psychology takes over in how it's interpreting things in scripture so this is why you have the rise of of the the Joel Gregory's and the Robert Schuler's and this phenomenon where they never talk about sin they never talk about atonement they just talk about how wonderful everybody is and how good they are because at their very core they have rejected Biblical epistemology. Now, that's not saying that they might be saved. God is gracious. He saves all kinds of people. And all kinds of people hear the gospel at some point or another. But that doesn't mean they're functioning on biblical truth. So psychological or social solutions become the, the framework, the terminology that's used to define these things. Another consequence. Since man is no different from any other animal... Remember learning that when you were in elementary school? You're an animal. You're not any different from any other animal. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you are created distinctly in the image and likeness of God for a purpose to represent God and to rule over the universe. That means that there's there's no relationship between us and any other creature. We're unique. We didn't evolve from monkeys. Monkeys didn't evolve from Horses, horses didn't evolve from uh, crocodiles and amphibians, and amphibians didn't uh, uh, evolve from a fish. None of that happened. That's contrary to the Bible. So, since man, according to rationalism, since man is no different than any other animal, we learn to solve their problems. Man learns to solve his problems not by looking to revelation from a creator. In other words, don't look at the don't look at the owner's manual written by the creator of the product, uh, look at other products. You know, have, have you ever had that experience? Go to the store, you buy so- something, and it's, it's difficult to put together, difficult to figure out how to use it. So what do you do? Do you read the owner's manual? Or do you go look at other things in your house and figure out how they work and then come back and see if you can figure out how this thing works? 
Well, that's basically what we're doing now in sociology. We don't look to revelation from a creator to inform us. We look to, we study nature. We look at human societies, all this to try to find out uh, answers for how, how man should solve his problems. The effect of all this is that God and the Bible are no longer relevant to modern man. And I used to go, uh, Tommy and I, Tommy Ice, my good friend, who we all know, we, it used to drive us nuts when we'd sit in some Christian ed class or some homiletics class, pastoral class in seminary, and they'd say, well, we need to make the Bible relevant. And I just wanted to scream, no, no, man needs to become relevant to God. God doesn't need to become relevant to man. What happened at the fall was that man became irrelevant. It's not that God became irrelevant. In in, in a very simplistic sense, who moved, God or man? Man did. And man's got to move back. And that's what the call of Scripture is. The Scripture is relevant. Man, because of his desire for independence and autonomy... Is, is not relevant to God. He says, well, that doesn't speak to me. It doesn't speak because in unbelief, he doesn't buy into what the Bible is saying. So he says, that's not relevant to me. He doesn't want it to be relevant to him. So this led to a, all of this led to a movement in the late 19th century to modernize Christianity, which meant basically to divest Christianity of, of supernatural beliefs. And that became known as the modernist movement. Now, you have to understand modernism if you're going to understand postmodernism. Because where we are today is postmodernism. But that's beyond anything I'm going to talk about in this little, this little sub-series. During the early 19th century, or that should be the early 20th century, a battle erupted between fundamentalists on the one hand and modernists on the other. And that became known as the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And in the fundamentalist modernist controversy, conservatives, Bible-believing Christians, uh, got involved trying to say, okay, what's the core? I mean, what is the uh, uncompromising core of what the Bible teaches that we all have to agree on, that if we don't agree on these three things or five things or ten things or whatever they were, and different people came up with uh, different different, doc, different uh, uh, suggestions. What, what is the core? And Curtis Lee Laws, in a well-known editorial written in the Baptist Watchman Examiner in 1920, coined the term fundamentalist and fundamentalism. That's where that term... Nobody used it before Curtis Lee Law used those terms in 1920. And he used that term, he coined the term fundamentalist and fundamentalism to define conservative Christians who held to five things. Inerrancy of the Bible, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, substitutionary atonement, his literally physical bodily resurrection and miracles, and then the the future literal return of Jesus Christ to the earth. Those were the five fundamentals of the faith, and that's where that term comes from. But it's been completely distorted and bastardized today, and it applies to, you know, all kinds of other things. But that's not where the term originated. And in a very real sense, we're fundamentalists. But if you say that today, people get all kinds of screwy ideas because, as is usual, Satan knows that the way to destroy and to attack Christianity is at the level of vocabulary. 
and we lose good words. We can't talk about being holiness Christians anymore because, you know, charismatics grab that. And that's another good biblical word is charismatic. We're all charismatic. We believe in the spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that's the word that's used, charismata in the Scripture. But, you know, they've changed that to mean something else. And, you know, it just goes on and on and on. One of the popularizers of liberalism at the forefront of the battle was a, a very popular preacher in the early 19th century by the name of Harry Emerson Fosdick. And he became the lightning rod. Really, you can almost trace it. Harry Emerson Fosdick, Norman Vincent Peale, Robert Schuller, Joel Gregory, and a number of others. They all flow in the same stream of consciousness almost. In 1922, he was invited to preach in a <clears throat> church in uh, New York. The pastor was out of town or uh, not present. He, he preached a sermon called, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And as a result of that, conservative Presbyterians and Baptists dubbed him the Moses of modernism, the Jesse James of the theological world. And his friend J., uh, John D. Rockefeller Jr. offered Fosdick the pulpit of his family's congregation, the Park Avenue Baptist Church in New York, which changed its name to Riverside Church, and he became the pastor there and uh, until his retirement in 1946. In, the book, in his sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win?, he said, Now, I want you to notice the, the technique that is used here to belittle conservatives. He says, here, for example, is one point of view, the virgin birth. This is just one point of view. You know, there are other points of view. They're equally valid. See, that, that's the approach here. And one point of view, that the virgin birth is to be accepted as historical fact. It actually happened. There was no other way for a personality like the master. Notice the terminology there. It's not the Lord. It's the master. You're dim- the very vocabulary diminishes the deity of Christ. Uh, there's no other way for a personality like the Master to come into this world except by a special biological miracle. Well, that's just one point of view. There's many are the wonderful, gracious, beautiful souls who hold that. See how patronizing he is. And then he says, but side by side with them in the evangelical churches, see there's an equally good and competing view, is a group of equally loyal and reverent people who would say that the virgin birth is not to be accepted as a historic fact. Here in the Christian church are these two groups, and the question which the fundamentalists, those nasty, dirty, evil fundies, raises this. Shall one of them throw the other out? See, those fundies just want to kick us out. How mean-spirited they are. Uh, He goes on to say, Is not the Christian church large enough to hold within her hospitable fellowship People who differ in points like this, see how reasonable I am, see how sweet we are, and they want to throw us out. And, and we believe in Jesus. You know, this is, this is the, the, the technique that is used to um, undercut uh, the fundamentalists and make, make them look bad. So Fosdick, this was a, a benchmark message that, that because he was the, he was, the preacher of that era. And back then, uh, sermons were often reported, printed in the newspapers, and, and they were uh, 
because they didn't have radio or television like, like we have today. Now, another statement that reveals what's going on here is one by Charles Eliot, who was a Unitarian president of Harvard. He's Unitarian. Harvard went Unitarian in 1807, I believe, and had been ever since then. And he uh, gave a, 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 an address at the Summer School of Theology in 1909, and in that he made this statement. Notice how modern this sounds, how, I mean, how contemporary this sounds. He says, the new thought of God... See, we're in a new, wonderful era of of Christianity. The new thought of God will be its most characteristic element in the religion of the future. This ideal will comprehend, you know, it'll include, it's all-inclusive, ecumenical. This idea will comprehend the Jewish Jehovah, the Christian universal father. Now, who's that? I mean, you know, that, see, right there he's, he's front-loaded the argument he's distorted Christianity right off the bat. Uh, the modern physicist's omnipresent and exhaustless energy and the biological conception of a vital force. You can almost hear um, Star Wars and may the force be with you floating around in there. See, these ideas aren't new. The new religion rejects absolutely the conception that God is alienated from the world. It rejects also the entire conception of man as a fallen being. In all its theory and in all its practice, it, that is, the religion of the future, will be completely natural. It will place no reliance on any sort of magic or miracle or other violation of or exception to the laws of nature. So what becomes your dominant, your dominant framework of, of evaluating, truth, truth, evaluating truth? It's reason, but what they're using is what's called natural law. And now natural law, there's... You know, it's used a couple of different ways in, uh, in in philosophy and history, but you've got to watch out for this. It just leaks in there that there's this uh, equally valid, on the same plane of authority as a scripture, these laws of nature or natural law, and they're not in contradiction with each other. And, and you'll hear Christians use this terminology, and it really comes out in Christian psychology, well, all truth is God's truth. No, it's not. The Bible is God's truth, and you use it to to evaluate everything else. So, and then you have another statement I have here, a quote from Shaler Matthews, very famous at that time. This is in the 1930s. He's the dean of the Divinity School at the University of Chicago. So he's speaking for Christianity, and he says, "The modernist starts with the assumption that scientists know more about nature." and man than did the theologians who drew up the creeds and the confessions. See, what's your ultimate basis for truth? It's, it's reason. It's man's own ability to interpret everything uh, completely independent uh, of what the Scripture says. So they come along then, and all these uh, systems reject what the Scripture says. Now, before we get to this next chart... That's the most extreme form of rationalism that basically denies everything that the Bible teaches. But just as I pointed out when we were studying mysticism and how there's extreme forms of mysticism like Gnosticism and Platonic idealism and occult mysticism, New Age mysticism, you also see that within Christianity there's this, there's this trend towards mysticism, which, which is dangerous. 
and it ultimately shifts your authority to some kind of internal uh, in, internal feeling or impression or people use all kinds of I've seen people try to avoid using those terms and then ultimately they're saying well when they taught that it just was right, seemed right to me now the charismatics will say that it, 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 it spoke to my spirit man whatever that is uh, but that's this 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 not uh, this mystical thing. But see, in in our circles, we also have a problem with rationalism leaking in, especially at the point of apologetics. And you see it in 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 um, uh, you see it with mysticism too. Now, apologetics is the field of theology where we construct our arguments to defend Christianity. Apologetics doesn't mean to apologize. The Greek word apologia was used in the courtroom for an argu- the argument that a, that a lawyer would construct in order to defend his client. Now, uh, let me give you an, an, an kind of an analogy here so that what I get ready to say, which may seem a little uh, academic for some of you, let's say you have a uh, somebody, you're, tr- you're trying to convince a judge and a jury of the, uh, the, the uh, of certain truths, and so you pull in your dream team of of lawyers, and you've got Percy Foreman and F. Lee Bailey and Johnny Cochran. Now they're all dealing with the same evidence, okay? Everyone, they, they, they're all dealing with the same evidence, but these guys get in the conference room before the trial, and they get in a big argument as to the strategy for presenting the evidence. Okay? That's what I'm talking about here when we talk about how to use Christian evidences. It's not a question of evidences or not. It is with one group, but mostly it's how to use them. And so I constructed this little chart here on the left you have a believer, and on the right you have an unbeliever. And the believer's trying to talk to the unbeliever about the gospel. And the unbeliever's saying, well, how can you believe in the gospel? How can you put your brain in neutral? And a lot of times when you're witnessing to people, you don't need to go into uh, much detail with Christian evidences. Sometimes you do. But the unbeliever's asking the question, how can you believe this? How do you know this is true? And so the question that comes up is, is what is the point of contact? What is the ultimate appeal of authority in knowledge that the believer can appeal to when he's talking to the unbeliever? And the, the ways, the strategies for doing apologetics, and it's interesting, Bruce pointed out last time that Paul Shockley, uh, who's a professor at the College of Biblical Studies, covered this about two weeks ago in, a, in an early morning show that College of Biblical Studies puts out on, the, on, the, uh, on television. So you've got, so this is very important to understand this. Most Christians give away the farm because they compromise epistemology at the very beginning. So remember I said you've got four ways of knowing. Got rationalism, empiricism, mysticism, and revelation. Those are your four basic strategies that people end up with in doing apologetics. On the one hand, you have the rationalist. His point of contact with the unbeliever is logic. Usually they refer to the law of non contradiction. Say, okay, let's use logic to show the truth of Christianity, as if logic is not affected by the fall of man. 
that man's reason is unaffected by the fall of man. See, there's, a, there's an inherent flaw there. You have people like Gordon Clark, who was a uh, very reformed Calvinistic apo- apologete, as well as uh, uh, Norm Geisler, who's written many good things. And these guys have great things to say, just that their ultimate strategy of how they're using the evidence is where the flaw is. It's not the evidence. So, I mean, I've got over 200, probably close to 250 books on apologetics in my library. And I've read all these guys, volumes of what they say, and I've learned from every one of them. But again, it just boils down to some ultimate structural things. Uh, empiricism. That's another way that leaks in. And that's Josh McDowell, C.S. Lewis, uh, Frank Morrison, any number of other apologies that you appeal to historical evidence is our common ground. See, we can prove that the tomb was empty. Therefore, you should believe Jesus. Well, you know, we got a guy up at Harvard, uh, Divinity School, who, of course, rejects the Bible. Nobody up there has believed in the Bible for years, decades, 200 years. Uh, said, well, okay, so I believe the tomb was empty. There's all kinds of anomalies in history. Big deal. See, the unbelieving mind doesn't have to accept the interpretation of the empty tomb that we, that we assign. Our interpretation of it comes from the Bible. But because they reject the Bible, they just reject our interpretation of it. So in, we, we, in, in empiricism and in rationalism, uh, leaks into our apologetic methodology. I put mysticism up in the corner. Mysticism produces a kind of apologetic approach called fideism, which is from the Greek, I mean, from the Latin word fide, meaning faith. And it's the idea that reason is so, don't, you can't appeal to evidence. You, you just take a leap of faith to believe the gospel. It's, it's non-rational. It's non-logical. You just believe it because it has meaning for you. So that's fideism. That's wrong because that's the mystical approach. I believe that the revelational approach, sometimes called presuppositionalism, is what's defined in Romans 1.19. This just makes witnessing and it makes apologetics so easy. Romans 1.19. We'll wrap up with this. Romans 1.19 says, I want to read the surrounding verses. Romans 1.19 says, Let's pick up verse 18. For the wrath of God, that is God's condemnation toward man, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God, what may be known about God, that's epistemology. How do you know anything about God? How do you know who He is? How do you know His characteristics? How do you know His essence? What may be known of God is manifest in them. Is that manifest in believers? No, it's manifest in unbelievers. The Bible says that the most pagan atheist knows in the core of his soul that God exists. The knowledge of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seeing nonverbal general revelation. His invisible attributes are clearly seeing, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There is enough internal knowledge in every human being to make them stand before the bar of God's justice, and they don't have an excuse to stand on. They don't have the word there. They, it's, it is the Greek on apologia. 
They don't have a defense. They don't have a defense. And so the point of common ground is when you're talking to an unbeliever, in his soul he knows God God exists. You don't have to prove it. You can answer questions that confirm the truthfulness of and validate the truthfulness of Scripture, but you're not looking to some authority over Scripture that proves Scripture because you're talking to somebody who knows in their heart of hearts that God exists. He may, be, he may have covered it up. He's suppressed that truth in unrighteousness. He's got ten inches of calluses around it. But that's where your appeal is. Your appeal isn't to reason as if it's untainted by fallen uh, man's fallen nature. Your appeal isn't to history as if it's pure, objective, untainted by, by human sin. Your, your appeal isn't just to feel good mysticism. Your appeal is that he already knows. And so what you have to do is expose the flaws and the failures in his, in his system. He can't live consistent with that system because every day the unbeliever who, who holds to the meaninglessness of life can't live that way. If he does, what does he do? He kills himself. He can't live as if life is me. And what we, we can do sometimes in apologetic strategy is simply make force them to feel the tension that's there. And then, and God the Holy Spirit uses that, and then we can bring the gospel to bear. So we have problems, in, 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 and, and it's gone throughout the centuries, that Christians always fall prey to the pressures of the cosmic system around them, mysticism, rationalism, whatever, to which dilutes and renders our spiritual life impotent and makes us dull of hearing. And we have to learn how to think biblically because if you're thinking like a pagan, even though you have morality and a lot of doctrine in there, if you're thinking like a pagan, it's going to stifle and squelch your Christian growth. So we have to learn to think biblically. Next time I'll come back and we're going to talk about the leading of the Spirit. How do you know? what that is and when it is. So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study these things. It's not easy. It's tough sledding to go through a lot of these difficult concepts, but it's important that we learn that we have uh, structured our thinking in a way that is uh, fundamentally opposed to you, and we have to learn to rethink and restructure our thoughts so that uh, we think biblically and not uh, based on Uh, other subtle forms of either mysticism or rationalism. Challenge us with what we've studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.